This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. This coming Sunday night marks the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Its most secular tradition involves eating apples with honey to symbolize the hope for sweetness in the coming year. But it's also marked by two days of prayer and religious congregation. This spectrum of observance epitomizes the many ways to celebrate Judaism, and it's one of the aspects of being Jewish that I love the most. In this week's story, teller Laura Stemple explores the history behind one of her own more controversial ways of celebrating her Judaism. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in December 2018, Second Story is proud to present Secondary Witness. This is a story about why I have a Star of David tattoo. My friend Ellen and I had just spent a week in Prague and had decided that as long as we were in Eastern Europe, we'd go to Berlin too. I have a rule that whenever I travel to someplace that was occupied during the war, I have to visit at least one memorial to Jewish life. In Prague, we toured the Jewish Quarter, and I figured that I'd have plenty to choose from in Berlin. It was the spring of 2003, and just a few days before the US was scheduled to invade Iraq. But the most visible signs of world conflict were the remnants of World War II and the East-West Divide. The eastern part of the city still looked like a Soviet town, and the Mitte was still full of poor artists. We went to a modern art museum that had been an East Berlin train station, and shopped at a big department store across the street from a bombed out church that had been preserved as a reminder of the war. One day we went to the Oranienburgerstrasse synagogue, which had opened in 1866 and had such a huge gold dome that it became a landmark for people navigating the city. The synagogue had been set on fire on Kristallnacht and bombed during the war, and eventually renovated and reopened in the 90s. And the renovation was the reason I wanted to see it. Workers had uncovered hundreds of things that members of the congregation had thrown into the basement and covered with concrete to preserve them from the Nazis. As we stood across the street, though, we saw people in uniforms walking back and forth in front of the building. What is that, we asked each other. What are they doing until we finally realized that we were watching German soldiers on patrol armed with machine guns? A war was about to begin, and the German parliament was meeting, but this was the only show of military anything we'd noticed since the soldiers who asked to see our passports as our train crossed from the Czech Republic into Germany. There's something scary about German soldiers demanding passports, Ellen had said then, and I couldn't argue with her. We passed through a metal detector to enter, which seems perfectly ordinary now, but happened much less often then. And although I was still a bit rattled by the security, I was enthralled right away by the mundane stuff that had been rediscovered under the concrete. Lists of who sat in which pew, invitations to bar mitzvahs, the reminders of the community that had existed there. And as we walked through the synagogue, we also realized that the renovation was intentionally designed to remind visitors of its destruction like the repair of the stained glass, which used plain glass where the original bits were missing. When Schindler's List came out, I had a conversation with a friend who was raised as a Catholic and who said, whenever I see films like this, I wonder what I would have done. 
I never have to ask that question, I replied. I know I'd have been like the little girl in the red coat. And in just the same way, I saw myself in the pew lists. This, I thought, is one of the reasons you travel. Imagining myself in a synagogue it pew was a weird experience, because I grew up in Detroit in a completely non-observant Jewish family. Even though we never belonged to a synagogue, though we had a strong sense of Jewish identity. We went to Jewish nursery school. We learned to swim at the Jewish community center. And my brother and I went to socialist Hebrew school for a year or so. <laughs> Both of my parents had been raised in observant families, and they'd gotten married in the rabbi's study at Temple Sholem, but they'd also both deliberately stopped practicing in their teens. My mother, over a perceived slight from the rabbi, my father, when he started at U of C, and in his father's words, lost his religion. My father held himself apart from any kind of organized Jewishness, but my mother got a sense of comfort and belonging from secular Jewish institutions. And she embraced a pretty broad idea of secular. In her 80s, she looked for the kind of community she'd known as a child, and she was willing to go back to synagogue if she found it there. To her great disappointment, though, she discovered that even reform synagogues expected people to believe. <laughs> I'd been wanting a new tattoo. I only had two at the time. And when I got back to Chicago after the trip to Prague and Berlin, I started thinking about what to get. I almost immediately thought of a Star of David, but that seemed way too scary. I kept conjuring up scenarios of being on a hijacked plane or some other situation where the Jews die first, and I kept trying to think of safer images. But I always came back to that one, and the fact that it scared me made me decide I had to do it. I don't usually do things that scare me. I'm afraid of heights. I'm fine never going on a roller coaster or standing on that glass floor in the Sears Tower. <laughs> I hate horror movies, and I'm not embarrassed to say that I find life frightening enough without trying to be scared on purpose. <laughs> but this was a different kind of fear. When I thought about this tattoo, what I felt was the fear of being endangered because I'd made myself visible, that it would tell everyone who saw it that I was a Jew. The tattoo represents several things to me, but this is one of them, deciding not to be afraid of that. Since the campaign for the 2016 election, and especially since the Tree of Life murders, I've thought a lot about how being Jewish makes me feel more vulnerable than, say, being queer does. Even before that, I've been trying to understand what it means to be a post-Holocaust Jew, someone born after what I still think of as the war. I was born in 1952, only seven years after it ended, and I've always understood my Jewish self in the context of those pictures of emaciated corpses and the knowledge that this is what people can do to one another. My parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, elderly second cousins, the older members of my friends' families, the worst they'd been able to think of was a pogrom. And sometimes I try to imagine how profound their shock must have been when they saw those pictures for the first time. Some people, even those who watched from this side of the Atlantic or who were only children of survivors, never quite recovered. And although I wasn't traumatized the way that they were, in some ways, I'd never quite recovered either. The Holocaust has shaped my idea of what it means to be Jewish 
in a way that has nothing to do with religious practice. As my father said, Hitler wouldn't care if you went to synagogue. But because I've never been observant, I've never had a place to be Jewish. When I joined Jewish Voice for Peace, for instance, it was for the politics. But I was always look, also looking for a place to be a Jew without having to practice Judaism. Ironically, although I found a real sense of community there, many of the people who belong to it are far more observant than those I've known in the past. And not just High Holidays Jewish, but let's build community by having Shabbat together Jewish. <laughs> Outside of spaces like that, where the assumption that we're all Jews, almost no one ever recognizes me as one. Maybe that's why my experience of anti-Semitism hasn't been that overt. Unlike, say, my father, who couldn't get into medical school until after the war because Northwestern had a quota for Jews. The first anti-Semitic remark I can remember was actually meant to be a compliment made to me at summer camp when I was 11 or 12, and another girl told me I was too pretty to be Jewish. Usually, though, it's more like what happened last year when an elderly man at the Jewel asked me why I had this tattoo. I said, because I'm Jewish, and he said, you don't look Jewish. Well, I thought that's what it's there for. Occasionally, someone will react to my tattoo by pointing things out to me, like the fact that I can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. There's some argument about whether that's even true, but since I don't plan to be buried anywhere, it's fine. <laughs> or they'll remind me that the Nazis used tattoos to mark people in concentration camps, and I'm disrespecting survivors by having any kind of tattoo at all. If I'm feeling particularly irritable, I'll tell them that in fact only Auschwitz prisoners were tattooed. That's about 75,000 people out of six million. That there's a difference between voluntary tattoos and marks meant to dehumanize prisoners and anyway, I don't make life decisions based on what the Nazis did. <laughs> Dora Apple is a scholar who's researched the art of secondary witnessing the ways in which people too young to have experienced the Holocaust create ways of remembering it. She's written about young Jews with Holocaust memorial tattoos, rabbis with stars of David, the use of tattoos to mark the difference of Jews versus the traditional nose job, which is meant to obscure it. One of the young women Apple met, a queer Eastern European emigre whose back is covered with Holocaust images, talked about how she and other tattooed Jews addressed conflicts with neighboring Orthodox by remembering that it's always a mitzvah to be publicly seen as a Jew. And that's what I say to people who find my tattoo offensive for religious or historical or even imaginary reasons. It's always a mitzvah to be publicly seen as a Jew. This isn't always persuasive. When I worked in a store in Highland Park, the woman who passionately objected to my tattoo totally understood the point of that story. But you don't have to mutilate yourself. She said, you could just wear a mezuzah. There's a difference, though, between wearing something around your neck and marking your body with it. I think about this when someone wants to see more Jews using flags or t-shirts or religious objects to declare their identity. I wrote it on my fucking arm, I want to say. Isn't that enough? A few years after our trip to Prague and Berlin, Ellen and I went to Barcelona. 
One day we were walking through a neighborhood that appeared to be Middle Eastern, and we passed a few men in traditional dress. When we got a little bit beyond them, she said, those men were looking at your tattoo. Well, I said, that's what it's there for. <laughs> but it made me really uncomfortable. Well, I thought, that's also what it's there for. This story was produced by Gracie Meyer, curated by Jess Kadish, directed by Max Spitz, with music by Elisa Rosenthal. Second Story Podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Leopardo Charitable Foundation, our 2018-2019 season sponsor, Skadden Arp Slate Vigor and Flom, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.